Today, people all around the world are remembering and celebrating the greatest event in human history, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Truly, all human discovery, achievement, all scientific breakthrough and advancement pales in comparison to this most glorious event. The event when Jesus Christ broke the power of death and the futility of humanity and in a single move ushered in true hope for the world through his resurrection from the dead. Today, we join in the song of the redeemed saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now, typically on this day, I could tell you that Jesus did not swoon on the cross, but actually, truly died. And that his death was overseen by professional executioners. I could tell you that he was buried in a well-known location. And yet, three days later, the tomb was empty. The grave clothes were lying in their place, and the face cloth was folded on top. I could tell you that women were the first to see him risen from the dead, which we already heard this morning brought no credit to the gospel claims because of the low view of women in that society. The question is, why mention the women at all? Well, because this is exactly how it went down. And I could tell you that 500 people saw the risen Jesus at one time. I could tell you how Jesus ate and drank, talked and walked with his closest friends and followers for 40 days after he rose from the dead. His appearance was not just a one-time hallucinated experience. I could tell you that Jesus' own family members were skeptical of him during his earthly ministry, but later accepted him as Messiah and as God after witnessing his resurrection. I could tell you that each apostle accepting John died gruesome deaths for their claim that Jesus was Messiah and Lord and not Caesar. I could tell you that people back then were no more gullible about these things than we are now. In fact, no one in the first century besides the Jews believed in what we call resurrection. Not only that, but nobody wanted it. The Greeks had a very low view of the body and the afterlife, and yet the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and was king over all changed the world. Now, these facts concerning Jesus' resurrection from the dead are of huge importance, but they are not told to us as cold facts from a textbook waiting to be dusted off once a year around this time, as we often treat them. The truth is the Christian life is to be one continual celebration and observance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is not just a one-off event in history. It is a life that we are invited to live. And so those who would follow and believe in Jesus are invited, called to practice resurrection. Author and theologian N.T. Wright says this, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ 
and that you are now invited to belong to it. The new world, the life that is to come, fullness of life, fullness of joy, a world we have never seen but we have only imagined in our greatest dreams. We are invited to belong to it. But what does it mean to practice resurrection? What does it mean to accept Jesus' victory over death as a living reality? I believe that it is a life that is both calculated and carefree. Calculated, what do I mean by that? Well, N.T. Wright, again, says this. Every act of love, every deed done in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, every work of true creativity, whether it's doing justice or making peace, healing families, resisting temptation, seeking and winning true freedom, is an earthly event and a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation. These act as signposts of hope, pointing back to the first and on to the second. What he's saying is every time you and I enact the life of Jesus by sacrificing our own selves for the good of others, anytime we win true freedom, anytime we do justice, anytime we do what the Bible tells us will be done in the kingdom of God, we calculate, we invest in the kingdom of God. That's what it means to practice resurrection. But I believe there's also more to it than that. It's not just to live a calculated life. It's also to have incredible freedom. Because if the resurrection is true, then this is not my only life, nor is it my best life. But the best is yet to come. And not only is the best yet to come, but it is imperishable. It is undefiled, it's unfading and reserved in heaven for us, protected by God. What does that mean? It means nothing can touch it, nothing can diminish it, nothing can take away from it. It is absolutely 100% secure. And so this truth brings incredible freedom. Because of this, those who have hope in Jesus are Free, free to love all people liberally, free to show kindness to all, free to forgive, free to think the best of people, free to loosen our control and worry, free to be generous and give more away. Free to take ourselves less seriously. Free to spend more time with people and investing in relationships and less time maybe on those pet projects that we have. Free to bless the people who hate and curse us. Free to grieve with those who grieve because we know that sorrow will not have the final word. Free to rejoice with those who rejoice. Free to invest in deep relationships, free to read another story to our kids or our grandkids if you have them, 
free to spend more time playing, more time listening, free to throw a great party or to plant a beautiful garden, free to celebrate life liberally and freely. Yes, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let us eat, let us drink, and let us be merry, for yesterday we were dead. We have an incredible hope through Jesus Christ because Christ is risen from the dead. This is what the early church used to say, trampling death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Our future is bright and glorious and the best is yet to come. But again, how do we practice resurrection? How do we make this a daily reminder how do we not leave it to a once-a-year celebration? Well, I believe that God actually wants to speak to us and engage with us in the ordinary, everyday moments of life through symbols and signs all around us because the ordinary is actually where real life is happening. God wants to use his creation and our daily rhythms in it to bring about spiritual formation. Just think for a moment about Jesus' teachings, if you're familiar with them. When Jesus would teach, he would use things around him. He would refer to the birds in the air. He would refer to seed and soil. He would refer to plants and flowers. He would refer to rocks and trees and mountains and the waters. He would refer to all these things. Why? Not just because they were great metaphors in the moment. No, because he wanted to remind us through these things of his own work, of his own truth, so that we could engage with those in a daily way. We can make habits of remembering him and the truths that he passed on to us. Tish Harrison Warren in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, she says, the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. We don't need huge events. Those probably don't actually help us live out the Christian life, but what does is the quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. Things like water, things like food, things like sleep. God has given us these gifts as windows into his truths so we can more easily grasp these things and live them out. So what am I even talking about, right? Well, this morning, I want to talk to us about death, or the grave, as Scripture puts it. And I want to talk about how we make this a liturgical tool, how we make this a daily reminder of Christ's victory over death and how we might use sleep to do that. So let's just talk a minute about the grave or death, right? We're all human here, I'm assuming. So death or the grave or this imagery isn't far from each of us. Whether you've lost a loved one or had your own near-death experience, Humans are acquainted with grief and death. 
We all know deep down that death is near, that it could potentially strike at any moment. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, you know, if you have a family, taking a trip for business, for work, or something like that, and just as you're saying goodbye to your family or you're getting on that airplane, just the thought hits you, what if? What if I don't make it? Or what if something happens to my family while I'm away and I'm unable to be there for them? Anybody had that? It just comes out of nowhere, right? And it's because death is always potentially near. Some of us try to ignore it. Others of us are constantly in the grip of fear of it, paralyzed by it. John Blanchard in his book, Whatever Happened to Hell, he says this, the current death rate is awesome. He doesn't mean that positively. Three people die every second, 180 every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour, and about 260,000 every day, 95 million every year. Death comes to young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, educated and ignorant, king and commoner. Whether the dynamic young business person, the glamorous actor or actress, the great athlete, the brilliant scientist, the television personality, the powerful politician, none can resist the moment when death will lay its hand upon them and bring all their fame and achievement to nothing. Death is no respecter of time or place. It is neither season nor perish. It can strike at any moment of day or night on land or on sea or in the air. It comes to the hospital bed, the busy road, the comfortable armchair, the sports field, and the office. There is not a single spot on the face of the planet where it is not able to strike. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said this. He says, it is impossible, excuse me, it is possible to provide security against other ills. But as far as death is concerned, we humans live in a city without walls. It's creepy, isn't it? I don't know if any of you ever saw the Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. But as I read this, this is what it reminds me of. In that film, death is personified. It comes from nowhere. It's going nowhere. It's just haphazardly taking life and wreaking havoc. Now, in biblical imagery, the grave is, of course, the ground or a tomb. But behind the image is deep meaning. The grave is the very antithesis of the enjoyment of life. It is the absence of companionship and friendship, the absence of the love between a man and a woman or the love between friends, the absence of the sounds of joy and laughter, the absence of enjoying the fruit of one's life and labor. Death is the cutting off, the severing of all life and joy. You might then be able to understand why in biblical imagery, death and the grave are actually seen as tyrannical monarchs over the kingdom of the dead. A trap 
is one imagery that ensnares its prey with cords that cannot be undone. That's from 2 Samuel 22. Mot, the Canaanite god of death, was thought to have a giant mouth that would swallow people up. Death is pictured in scripture as prison bars that are impenetrable. See, in scripture, death is seen as, as I said, this tyrannical monarch, a tyrant and a thief, stripping every human bear, destroying everything good in God's creation. But at the same time, the biblical writers knew of God's promise to restore all things and to redeem this world. The understanding was at the end of time, what's commonly called the great day of the Lord, God would set everything right and he would raise up or resurrect the righteous to forever experience his renewed creation while the unrighteous, all evil and destruction would be resurrected to be judged and banished from God's good world and kingdom. Think about that. One day, righteousness rewarded and evil finally named and judged, seen for what it is and removed. The prophet Ezekiel has this vision in his prophetic book of this valley of dry bones And it pictures this resurrection at the end of time. But even more vivid is Isaiah's vision of the celebration of God's final victory over death. It's written in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, a celebratory feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Yahweh has spoken. Amen. Probably, though, the most obvious Old Testament reference to resurrection is found in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Listen to this. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, because of this deep conviction about God's resurrection power, because of God's goodness, Scripture speaks of death for those who are God's people in terms of sleep. We can read it in 1 Kings 2, 10. David slept with his fathers. And this continues all throughout the biblical narrative. The righteous go to sleep. 
Death is described in this way because in biblical understanding, death, though still an enemy and a tragic interruption of earthly life, is not the end of our story. You know, it's really interesting to just think how alike death and sleep actually are. What keeps you when you're asleep? Anybody ever do this? Like sit there maybe when you can't sleep, you know, you sit in your bed and you just think about what does sustain me while I sleep? How do I, how do I keep from, you know, suffocating? How, how do I you keep my heart going? Like, you know, maybe as a child you think about this kind of stuff, you know, you get in your head and you just overthink these things. Who holds you and who sustains you? You know, we display a lot of trust when we sleep. Uh, our family has a little puppy right now. He's eight months old. And the other day, my wife was just taking a nap on the couch. And man, I tell you, you cannot trust our dog when you are sleeping. He's like, you know, he just like gets like all riled up and he's freaking out and he's like barking and he's jumping on her. It's like, okay, no way. You know, got to lock him outside, right? But normally when we sleep, we don't even think about those things. What if a spider crawls into my mouth? What if ants come into the house? You know, like we don't think about this stuff. We just, we just go to sleep. And we wake up the next morning, we're refreshed, we're ready to go again. There is incredible vulnerability in sleep. I won't even talk about how many spiders each of us swallow in a lifetime or any of that kind of stuff, right? And nobody wants to hear that stuff. Sleep involves a letting go of everything, though. It's a suspension of our control over things. It's a sort of death to control, a death to autonomy. In one sense, we truly commit ourselves into the hands of God as we lay down to sleep. We trust ourselves into his sustaining care and power. And miracle of all miracles, we awake, we rise again. Only by the sustaining power of God I believe there's clearly a metaphor here for us. You know, by the first century, the time of Jesus, the Jews had all but forgotten, it seems, this language of death as sleep for God's people. You can see this in the narrative because all the time Jesus refers to death as sleep and nobody knows what he's talking about. What are you talking about? She's dead. What are you talking about? Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. Are you, are you kidding right now? Like, people don't know if he's joking. People don't know if he's dumb. Like, they don't know what's happening. Jesus revives this language, death as sleep. It's constantly mocked and misunderstood when he uses it. The crowds laugh and jeer. Some get angry, understandably so. Jesus seems insensitive. Now, there's this incredibly poignant story about this in Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible... Mark 5, and then I'm just going to read an interpretation from a children's Bible that I really love. Mark chapter 5, this is the raising of Jairus' daughters. It says, then he, Jesus, came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? Can you imagine? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. How dare you? Who do you think you are? You sick freak. Get out of our house. 
Get out of this family gathering. You have no place here with your cultural, relational insensitivity. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was. And this comes from Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jesus Storybook Bible Version. I love this. It says, And there lying in the corner in the shadows was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And then he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she had just had a good night's sleep and leapt out of bed. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things untrue. He was mending God's broken world. See, in the gospel stories, the people that die and are touched by Jesus, it is though they were only sleeping. They're touched by Jesus, or in some stories, they just hear the sound of his voice, and they wake right up. They go about their merry lives like nothing had happened. Now, among the first Christians, there was an intentional shunning of the term death, and the typical reaction to death because of the triumph of Jesus' resurrection. For those who belong to Jesus, death is nothing more than a nap from which the righteous will awaken to an endless day. For those who are in Jesus, the grave becomes a positive symbol and reminder of our ultimate hope that Everything that one has will be removed, and only what cannot be lost, what cannot be shaken, will remain. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Taking the judgment our sin deserves there on the cross, dying in our place, taking on the devil killing death and its power in his own death, rising again so we could be brought to God, ascending to the right hand of God, having all authority and power to judge and to restore. And for all who trust in him, one day you will lay your head down for the last time and you will fall asleep But if you have this incredible hope in Jesus, if you belong to him, you will hear the words of the resurrected son of God say to you, my little child, wake up. And you will open your eyes. You will open your eyes to the face of Jesus Christ, the death-conquering lamb. You will open your eyes to a whole new world. This is the promise 
for those who are in Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. This is it, church. This is it, visitors. This is what it's all about. We believe that there is a hope beyond this life. We believe that there is a hope beyond the grave. Why do we rage so hard against death? It doesn't matter how old someone is, how full their life is. We're like, what a shame, short life, 98 years old. Not, most of us aren't even gonna live that long. And we're like, man, had to go so soon. Why? Because it was never meant to be. God made us for himself to dwell in fellowship with him, to enjoy him. That's why we know that the most meaningful thing in life is relationships. It's connection with one another. It's living sacrificially, giving ourselves away to one another. Because that's the way God lives. That's what God has created us for. But sin cut us off from fellowship with God and we're separated and we die. But it was never meant to be. And this is what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. That God has done something about humanity's greatest problem. He has fixed it. And he promises one day to raise Anyone and everyone who will come to him to raise us up again, to enjoy the world it was, that was created to be, that was meant to be, to enjoy life the way it was meant to be. But it's not just about, okay, pie in the sky, one day, far off, we'll get there, and I hope that I may, that I might. No, it's about practicing resurrection now. As I said in the beginning, because if we have this hope, if it's sure, if it's steadfast, if it's undefiled, unfading, imperishable, that means we have incredible hope to live out of. We can take risks. We can give our lives away. We can sacrifice because this is not our best life, nor is it our only life, but the best is yet to come. And so I would like to challenge and or invite us this morning to engage with this truth daily, regularly, because this is what the gospel is all about, that hope that we have in Christ, that assurance that we have in Jesus. So what if we use sleep as a reminder to think on to remember what Jesus did for us in his death, putting to death, death, rising again from the grave so we might rise one day. What if we use sleep to remind ourselves of this incredible hope that we have? What if we actually saw death, the worst thing that could ever happen as an already defeated foe? I believe through the daily rhythm of sleep, we can be reminded of how the Lord Jesus Christ underwent death for every one of us. That through death, as the writer of Hebrews says, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And that God raised him up again and has seated him at the right hand 
ruling with all power and authority, authority and power to raise us up on the last day. What if we actually lay claim on this truth? When we lay down and sleep each night, we have a tangible reminder of our vulnerability, of our powerlessness as humans, of our desperate need of a savior. We have a reminder of the only one who has said in all of history, I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of hell and death. We have this opportunity each evening to totally entrust ourselves to the resurrected, resurrecting Messiah. So may this act of sleep remind you of the one comfort we have both in life and death, that we are not our own, but that we belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you rise the next morning, let us commit ourselves afresh to him. Lord, I'm yours to do your will, to follow in the way of Jesus, to give my life away as you gave your life for me. As we commit ourselves to practice this resurrection hope anywhere and everywhere we go, we look forward to that day when the Lord will finally resurrect us to enjoy his new world, life without end, and we will join in the song of the redeemed singing, you are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons out of every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and we will reign on this earth. Indeed, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And we could go on and on and on. Now, as we close, I want to speak to anyone here who doesn't have any religious background, any connection to Jesus, any kind of faith to speak of in this message. I just want to simply say this. For anyone who says yes to Jesus, anyone whose heart is touched by the things that we've been talking about this morning, this hope, this giant hope to live out of, for anyone who believes what Jesus did and said, you can just reach out and take it. That's it. If you believe, if you say, I want that, guess what? It's yours for the having, for the possessing, to have this hope in Jesus Christ. And then this is what God promises. He will give you this wonderful gift to be born into a whole new life, a life of resurrection hope. To be God's special child who we, he will take by the hand and he will lead you your whole life through death and out the other side. 
This invitation is to anyone who will take it. We're gonna have pastors available up here at the front. Also, we have a whole team of people in the courtyard. And if that's you, we would love to talk with you afterwards. To all the rest of you, well, to everyone, happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. And Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of the dead. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. We pray that we would take hold of it. Lord, that we would find that calculated living in Jesus and that we would find that ease and that carefree posture just to enjoy the things that you have given us all to your glory. We praise you. We thank you. Amen.